0: This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the SportsNet Radio Network.
1: Okay, so a couple of things. The Boston Bruins are a freak. The Colorado Avalanche are in trouble. The Anaheim Ducks are doing well pretty much what they're supposed to be doing. Toronto Maple Leafs are an elite team that nobody believes in. David Pasternak is going to get paid. The Seattle Kraken are grinding their way through this schedule. These are some of the answers to today's Merrick Show QOD, which I tweeted out a couple of hours ago. Which is this: Tonight is the halfway point of the season. Right? It's going to happen with one of the late games tonight. We'll get into that in a couple of seconds. Tonight is the halfway point of the season. So, what are you one hundred percent certain of? right now there's been enough runway here we've had enough viewings it's been a few months into the season that we're starting to see patterns and starting to make determinations about teams will there be one that goes on a wild you know hamburglar esque winning streak maybe maybe a st louis blues-esque winning streak and end up winning the stanley cup in a surprise upset maybe might happen but generally you know we're kind of seeing where the season is headed so far now thankfully we're actually getting races Last year in the Eastern Conference, outside of the seedings and who's going to play who in the opening round, that was a snooze. That was all settled around Christmas time, maybe even before Christmas time. The East was done. At least this year we have races in both of them. So I'm curious, and we've got some really good answers so far. I am curious. We're at the halfway point of the season tonight. What are you 100% certain of? Maddie Marchese comes in here for a couple of moments here on the program. By the way, Elliot is at the Nashville skate uh, at Scotiabank, so he's going to be joining me in one hour time. So hit pause on that. Greg Waszynski gets pushed to tomorrow. We're a mess today. We're a Frankenstein program, but nonetheless, there it is. Maddie, how are you today?
2: I'm I'm better. I was better yesterday than today because yesterday's show fell into our lap, Jeff. <laughs>
1: Oh, I know. You, you handed me a couple of different general <laughs> managers as well. The two teams were facing <laughs> off against each other. There's Kevin Adams, come on down. Uh, there was also Ron Francis, come on down. And today it's you and me. You know, D- Dan Carlin, <laughs> uh, the, who to me is the greatest podcaster, uh, used to have a great line of it when he used to host Talk Radio in San Diego, a daily uh, news and, and politics show. He would say, you know, one of the reasons why podcasting was so attractive to him is as a radio host, three days of the week, he was excellent. The problem is he was on five days of the week. (laughs) And when you do a podcast, you can be good a couple of times of the week and that's it. But when you're doing daily radio, eh, some of the blemishes start to show, Maddie. Some of the blind spots start to show. Some of the biases really start to show. There you go. So I kind of feel like Dan Carlin, this program anyway. Three days of the week, we're really good. The problem is we're on for five. Anyway, how are you today?
2: I, I'm, other than that, I'm good. We managed, to, we managed to put the show on the air. A little bit of a look behind the curtain, we managed to put the show on the air. That's all that matters.
1: <laughs> About an hour and a half ago, we get a text from Elliot. Pred skate, one o'clock, please. <laughs> Boom, and Maddie's life changes. Oh, by the way,
2: <laughs> did you watch that Colorado-Florida game last night at all? I, I have to confess, Jeffrey. Um, I was I was KO'd by about nine o'clock last night.
1: Oh, were you? Yeah, you've had a couple oh, of yeah. rough ones with your kid. I get it. You've got a yeah. Maddie's got a young child. We've many of us have been there. Many of us have been there. But it's the old saying: you dip the stick, you got to pay for the oil. Now, there's a moment in that game late because Colorado has this incredible comeback, right? I shouldn't say incredible because we're used to comebacks now in the NHL. And then late in the game, Arturi Lekinen takes a penalty. Did they, did they call it a slash? Did they call it interference? Can't remember what the exact penalty was, but essentially he got his stick in and around the hands. And it's just it's quick, right? It's really, really quick. You can have a look. The the clips are online, just on quick Twitter search, uh Lekkonen, um, on Aaron Eckblad's hands. And right away the official's arm goes up and he sits too It doesn't look like it doesn't look egregious at all. It looks really light. It's nothing more than he looks like he's just trying to tap Ekblad's stick, and the and the and the stick kind of rides up, and everybody loses their mind. I got to talk to Peter Bob about this, who covers the ABS for the Athletic, coming up at the bottom of the hour. So everybody loses their minds on this on social media. You know, Shane O'Brien's going crazy about it. Let the boys play. This is nonsense. That really shouldn't be a penalty. And I get it. Like I that part, that hockey part of me under, understands it because no harm, no foul. Why? Why are they calling that? And just for purposes of of clarification, just so we're all on the same page here, do you remember a few years ago when everybody was getting their fingers broken, a lot of slashes around the hands, Mm -hmm. hands are getting broken, wrists are getting snapped, all of it? Johnny Gaudreau. So the crack... And and there was Johnny Gaudreau... You know, Johnny Gaudreau was probably the reason that this got changed. Like, we should really call... You're right, because we should really call this uh, the Johnny Gaudreau rule. So I can't remember which manufacturer it was... And I don't want to venture a guess because I, I don't want to be wrong and embarrass a company that that's not responsible for this. But there was one of the hockey manufacturers that with their gloves, when you closed your hand, all of your, pretty much all of your knuckles were really exposed. And so if a player was wearing this brand of glove, you knew to tap him in the hands because right away there's not going to be any protection and the player is going to drop his stick. And this doesn't even have to be. You've been slashed before in the hands. There doesn't even have to be a hard slash and the stick will just go. Um, and so general managers complained, players complained. And so the edict came down, anything around the hands, any stick around the hands, whether it's a hard slash or maybe even just a tap, the officials are instructed to call it because there's a concern that, you know, if you let the Lekkonen play go last night, it's the slippery slope argument, right? It's like, ah, that, that wasn't egregious. We'll just let that one go. And then all of a sudden, when because, you know, players, you know, uh, you know, give them an inch and they'll take a mile. Uh, give them a rope, they'll think they're a cowboy. It will get carried away unless you have strict enforcement of all sticks around hands. And I looked at that play and I said, that was called because of every single general manager who had a player that got a broken knuckle or an injured wrist because of slashes around the hands or even just stick checks that rode up and hit the hands. I know it sucks. I know it looks soft. I know it looks weak. But this all goes back, I think, to your point, Maddie, to Johnny Gaudreau getting chopped every time he skated through the neutral zone. That's what
2: that play was last night. So I watched it. I just saw it. Um, didn't. Not gonna lie. We like eh? it, Jeff. Didn't like. Didn't like it. I know. I know. No. I get it. There's no impediment there. Aaron Ekblad is allowed to finish the play that he started, and that to me, correct. Like, oh, it's just, yep. oh, it's, it's not, it's not but not great, Bob.
1: It, I know, but you know what it is, Maddie That has now become puck over glass. The stick to the hands has now become puck over glass. It's automatic. Yeah. You have the puck and someone t- touches your hands. It's automatic. It's a play. They want to completely get any hint of having sticks riding up the, the shaft of the other player and getting into the fingers and, and getting onto the wrists. They don't want any part of it. Now, it came at an awful part of the game. Colorado's trying to complete this wonderful comeback against the Florida Panthers. We all know, well, both these teams really needed those points. Um, and I'm sure both of them would have been happy just to get this thing in overtime, just to guarantee them won. Uh, but for the Florida Panthers win this thing in regulation, and you point to that Aturi Lekin in play, and you say, ah, oh, you're right, Maddie. it has an odor, it stinks. But I just try to figure out, like, I try not to do the knee-jerk thing especially not on social media. And I know it's really tempting, but it's just too easy to look at something and say, I don't like it. Blah, 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 blast off on Twitter. Blah, 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 blah. This is awful soft game. You try to figure out what's behind it. And that's behind it. Like I've talked to people in the NHL about it. They don't want sticks anywhere, anywhere in your hands. Anyway, that's that game. I didn't think I was going to talk for eight minutes about Arturi Alekin and that play last night, but there it is more on the avalanche. And are you concerned at the bottom of the hour with Peter Baugh, Elliot Friedman coming up an hour two? Um, so the QOD halfway point of the season this evening. Now this all depends on <laughs> this all depends on w- which puck gets dropped first. Okay, so there is the Oilers and the Ducks are scheduled for ten Eastern. You can watch this on Sportsnet One and Sportsnet West. The Sharks and the Kings are also at ten o'clock. Whichever game starts first, that's the halfway point. That is the exact halfway point of the season. So here we are halfway through the season when the first puck drops on the two late games this evening. What are you 100% sure of? So the things that I threw out were the Boston point, the Colorado point, uh, the Ducks, the Leafs, Pasternak, Seattle. You have anything that you want to add to this one?
2: Yeah, i am i am a, I'm a hundred percent sure that Max Pacioretty is the perfect, perfect player that was needed for the Carolina hurricanes, three goals in his first three games and he's shooting the puck like crazy. He's like, get it on my stick, fire it at the net. Um, and he doesn't, I mean, the sp- he's never been a, a speed demon, so I feel like his adjustment to come back to the lineup, it's not about a speed game, especially coming off the Achilles injury. I, I think that's part of the reason mm-hmm. why it hasn't been such a, a drastic change for him coming back from the injury. He's just a shooter, and uh, that's exactly what the Hurricanes need right now. So that's my 100% thing that I'm sure about.
1: Okay, yeah, they do need goals. That's the one thing we do know about Carolina. So a lot of people uh, tweeted in, a couple of DM'd me and texted as well. Uh, This is an interesting one. We haven't talked about this a whole lot other than when we first saw it appear. So I want to make sure we get this in. Juliana Nakatch sends this one in. 100% sure the moving digital ads on the boards are not, as Gary would say, quote, better than having the numerous logos on the Dasher boards. It's working extraordinarily well. Uh, she submits they're distracting and not accessible for people with certain disabilities. There have been reports and stories done on people with epilepsy watching yes. the game and how these ads affect them. So I think that's an important one uh, to get out there. How do you feel about the, the the moving ads on the Dasher boards, the digital ads?
2: I. I don't I don't hate the concept but it's there there is you know actual the actual concept and then using them in practicality and in actuality and it's, they're not working right now. If there wasn't any issues with them then I would be fine with it but I'm also a guy that is just fine with having the the, the ads on the boards in the arena and just seeing those. Um, I get why the NHL is mm-hmm. doing it. I understand it's a revenue stream but it does feel like it was a little cart before the horse. Like, let's perfect this thing before we decide to actually use it. And I think that's that's kind yeah. of an issue. I, I don't think they're going away. They're not. It's a revenue stream, but I think they do need to kind of perfect it here.
1: I think they'll get massaged. I think the ones where there's a lot of motion is distracting when you're trying to follow the puck. Again, if you're someone and listen, if you're someone that's listening to this program or watching this program on Now or 360, you, you you know you're you're a hardcore hockey fan and you know a, a lot of this won't really appeal to you or you'll you'll say like well oh, it's not distracting i can still follow the game i know where the puck is going i can see by way of player's body position where the action is and where my attention should be and i get that but always try to put yourself as much as you can, because it's difficult. But as much as you can, try to put yourself in the position of someone who's never watched the game before or who's trying to become a hockey fan. And every time the puck enters the offensive zone and you're trying to follow it or trying to follow the play, there's a there's a digital ad on the boards and something goes racing around the rink or skitters back and forth to draw your eyes away from the actual game itself. Like I understand the idea of ads that are available while the action is on by way of billboards. I just don't know, and I've thought a lot about this too, and I I think they will get massaged. I just don't know if it's wise to put something on the screen that's going to distract away from your game. Now, the other thing that I thought about with uh, with these ads is COVID. And if it weren't for COVID and the millions of dollars that were lost during COVID, I don't know that we would see these things. Like, there's a lot of things that once upon a time were sacred. And I know a lot of people like to dump on the commissioner. And I I, I get it. He's he's there to take bullets, too. He's, a lot of these are his decisions, obviously. Um, but there's a lot of things that that the commissioner has kept clean in the NHL that after COVID and numerous owners looking for new revenue streams and trying to recoup money, uh, eventually, and whether it's ads on jerseys or, you know, digital rink boards and, and moving ads you just kind of have to give into as teams try to make their money back. So every time I see those digital boards, just like when I see ads on jerseys, I think COVID and all the COVID losses, I think that's going to be one of the legacies in the NHL. One thing I wanted to mention, I want to make sure we get this out. I mentioned Boston off the top and how much of a freak they are. You know, I'm uncomfortable with the conversation that the Boston Bruins are trending towards being, you know, the uh the, the best regular season team of all time. Um just because you know, I, I look at the seventy seven Habs for example and say, Okay, if at the end of the game it was two to two, that was the score. That was it. There were ties. There are no ties anymore. Um so I, I don't know, and listen, I'm not taking anything away from this 32-4-4 record, which is incredible. I just don't know that I'm comfortable calling them the best regular season team of all time. But the one thing I am comfortable saying is I think we might be missing the boat on the Boston Bruins right now because we've given a lot of praise to Jim Montgomery, rightfully so, a lot of praise to David Pasternak's season, and he is going to get double digits, take that to the bank, long-term deposit, etc., you know what I really think changed the Boston Bruins? It was the same thing that changed the Anaheim Ducks before they won the Stanley Cup. Another A-level defenseman. Could you not make the argument that the reason Boston is like this, because this is still the same team. Sure, there's a new coach, but this is still the same team. Could you not make the argument that Hampus Lindholm changed everything? and that the presence of Hampus Lindholm allows that team to have either Charlie McAvoy or Hampus Lindholm on the ice at all times. And Hampus Lindholm, who plied his trade in Anaheim for all those years very quietly, was one of the best defensemen in the NHL that not a lot of people knew about outside of hardcore fans. Casual hockey fans maybe would have known a little bit about Hampus Lindholm, but essentially he was hiding in Anaheim. You don't hide when you play with the Boston Bruins, and now everybody knows how great he is. And if you're going to point to one thing that's helped the Boston Bruins get to this 32-4-4 and record, not to take anything away from, you know, number 37 or David Krejci or Jim Montgomery or Alina Solmark, to me it's Hampus Lindholm. Full stop. What do you think of that?
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, Billy Jaffe, when we had him on, was talking about how how Jim Montgomery deploys his defensemen, and there are games where he'll play McAvoy and Lindholm together, depending on the matchup. If he really wants to dominate a certain line or or whatnot, and then he can spread mm-hmm. them out, and then you've got them playing the power play, and they're killing penalties. And they, when you have two defensemen that play in all facets of the game, it makes and and are really good at it. It makes a huge difference, yeah. and especially when you're at home, like the. It sounds to me, and I, I, I confess, I haven't watched every Boston Bruins game, so I'm sorry, but the way Billy was outlining it for us was Jim Montgomery plays the matchup game so well at home, which may speak to why the team has not lost in regulation at home yet and why they've been such a wagon mm-hmm. whenever, they, whenever they step on the ice because they have that ability to not only line match, but it's like, oh, we'll, we'll, give, we'll give Charlie McAvoy a break here. Oh, here comes Hampus Lindholm. Good luck with that one. I think that Hampus Lindholm has absolutely <laughs> made a massive difference for the Boston Bruins.
1: Yeah, he's uh, he's good, and now everybody knows it. The other thing that I am uh, I'm, I'm really certain about is that the Seattle Kraken are successfully grinding their way through this season, and we look at this month. Like, I don't know if you do this, I, I try to go through every team on Sunday and I have a look at, okay, what's their schedule like this week? What's their schedule like next week? What does their month look like? What do you expect? What do you think the trends will be here? What are their challenges? You know, They have an extended road trip. What's that going to mean for call-ups, et cetera? At the beginning of the season, I looked at the Kraken and their first three weeks and I said, this is going to be death for Seattle. Most teams play three games a week. And if you don't, you play four, and usually if you do, sometimes you get a little bit of a reprieve the next week, and you might only play two. Seattle Kraken, to kick off this month, have three four-game weeks in a row. Bam, bam, bam. Swept four last week. They have four again this week. They've taken two, beating the Buffalo Sabres last night as well. Four to three, just shading them. Yanni Gourd, excellent. Philip Grubauer, excellent. 32 saves. In what may be the most interesting game this week, and did you ever think you would say this at the beginning of the season, the Seattle Kraken are playing the Boston Bruins on Thursday. Oh, boy. Maddie, I'm not going to tell you, man. I'm really looking forward to that. And much like I would have told you at the beginning of the season if I looked at last night's game and said, ooh, Florida, Colorado, give me some of that, that could be a Stanley Cup preview. We all know what's happened to both those teams. I don't know at the beginning of the season if I looked at Boston, Seattle, and said that's going to be the game of the night, but I bet it is, Matty. I bet it is.
2: Yeah, it's what the the I'm telling you that Dave Haxtell, like in in most years, looking at what Jim Montgomery's done with the team, I would say clear, clear favorite for the Jack Adams Trophy, and I said this over a month ago. For me, Dave Haxtell has to be at or near the top of that list just because expectations were not very high. And when you look at the team, you know, I think of, I'm trying to, they, they don't have the star power. Like I love Matty Baneers, but he's not a star yet. Yep. And they don't have great goaltending. They are a team built up of, you know, much like the Vegas Golden Knights were with less star power, a bunch of quote unquote misfits. And what he's done with this group, and there were lots of people that thought that he was going to get fired after one season with Seattle last year, and they stuck with him because were, clearly yep. this was their guy and what he's done with this group and I and dare I say that I don't think that Ron Francis is done dealing here like Tolvenin has been such a good pickup for them. Uh, he didn't have a point last night, but a point in every other game he's played I I wonder mm-hmm. about Seattle trying to make a push to bring in a bona fide star or i I just it just feels like that's their type of move that person also has to have term Mm -hmm. on their contract because i don't think they're looking for a rental where they are but they are super super interesting right now
1: so rachel dory said uh sent an an answer as well and this is a really good one too because we talk a lot about jim montgomery and coach of the air etc and there's a few candidates how about this one Don Granado isn't getting enough love for the development he's doing with the young Sabres. Amen. Yep. Amen. Look at all of those kids. All of them. And it's led by Tage Thompson, although Tage Thompson really isn't a kid. But look at some of the players like that that and even not even just the players too. Look at Pekka Lukanen And those opportunities. Like that schedule that they laid out between Anderson and Lukanen. Like That was a gauntlet that Lucanan had to go through. and a lot of coaches might not have made that same decision or put that same type of schedule together. Now, I know a lot of it, I'm sure, is put together between not you know not just Don Granado, but the goalies as well. Um, Mike Bales is the goaltending coach there, so he would have had a hand in it as well. But now all of a sudden we're saying, oh, hold on a second here. You know, Eric Comrie didn't have, you know, the best rehab assignment to Rochester and last night didn't exactly go well. What was it, four goals on 22 shots? Meanwhile, everyone in Buffalo is screaming, Lukanen, send him back. And, you know, as Kevin Adams told us yesterday, he woke up and he was sick and he couldn't play. I think Don Granato's done a great job, Matty.
2: He has. And it, it, the the one for me, I, I know that everybody will point to Tage Thompson and, and I get it. But the one for me, is Rasmus Dallin because so much was expected of him and he everybody was kind of saying, Well, he's not really living up to expectations and this isn't working, and was he, you know, is he ever gonna be that guy? And I feel like that is the most impressive development that Don Granado has has done with this group because when you have that type of defenseman, the game becomes a lot mm. easier in multiple facets. And Rasmus Dahlin has taken that the step that he has taken has been way bigger year over year than I don't, than I think anyone could have ever expected. And the, it was mentioned yesterday by Kevin Adams. Like he's a man now, like he's 22 years old, but he's, he's worked on himself. But I think that the job that Don Granado's has done, uh, Hey, the Buffalo Sabres to, in, in my opinion are the most fun team to watch every single night. Cause I have no idea what's going to happen, but I do know they're going to score a lot of goals. <laughs>
1: Uh, and it's going to be fun. Okay, uh, you, you choose one from all the responses we got, and then we'll get to this uh, part of this Ryan McDonough interview here. And then give way a right, Peter Law.
2: Yeah, this is my favorite one. Uh, this is from Bring Back St. Louis Punk. Uh, I'm 100% sure that I oh. have 100% no idea what the Blues are that are that. And if the Oilers miss the playoffs, that would be 100% hilarious.
1: Oof! Uh, for everybody outside of you know anyone in that area code to say nothing of anyone who's, whose job may be in jeopardy if that does happen um, to the point about the st. Louis Blues I agree I have no clue other than what we're seeing now is a team that is transitioning from the Ryan O'Reilly Vlad Tarasenko I mean they already started this transition when they when they let Alex Petrangelo walk and this has kind of been this is this has been coming for a while Because losing that, I I still don't think that St. Louis has recovered from losing Alex Petrangelo. He just did so much on that blue line. And I know they tried to cover it up by bringing in other defensemen, whether it's Falk, although he came in when Petrangelo was there as Petrangelo Insurance, uh, or Tori Krug. Um, I think they tried to bring in defensemen who all could do a little bit of what Petrangelo did. And ultimately, it's just a lot easier to have that guy, great leader as well for that team. So I, I think this has been coming for a while here for St. Louis. The good thing, I'll say this, the good thing for the St. Louis Blues is as, the, as this inevitable march has continued where we know that Vlad Tarasenko, uh, who requested a trade a couple of years ago, is not going to be here at the end of the season, maybe won't be here at the, by the end of trade deadline. We'll see what happens with Ryan O'Reilly. Uh, does he stay on a short-term deal? Does he end up getting moved elsewhere? This is a team that's transitioning from that era of St. Louis Blues to the Jordan Cairo, Robert Thomas, uh, maybe soon to be one day Joel Hofer, probably as soon as next season. Netminer was outstanding prospect for that squad. Um, the good thing for St. Louis is during that time, they haven't been awful. And maybe you might say this is death and I understand it, but they've been good. Not great, but good. So they've been able, again, we look at the history of St. Louis hockey. There's been a whole lot of playoff runs and a whole lot of playoff streaks, but it's always been a competitive team. It's seldom, if ever, that St. Louis really bottoms out. And that's where we are, again, with the St. Louis Blues. As they move this thing, throw Jake Neighbors into the conversation too, as they move this thing from from the fumes of the Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues to this next era of St. Louis Blues. Um, man, I keep coming back to this idea that the Edmonton Oilers are going to be okay and I shouldn't worry about them. I know people in Edmonton are worrying about them. I don't think that I'm one of the people that worries about the Oilers. I know it's awkward. I know the goaltending has been an issue. I know they still need someone else on the left side. I know their cap situation. I understand it. And Evander Kane is coming back and that will certainly help. But I, my brain isn't, hardwired to believe that a team with Connor mcdavid and leon Draisaitl won't make the playoffs i can't there's there's a breakdown in my head when i even try to consider that point but we'll see how it goes and maybe i should uh you want to get to this ryan mcdonough maddie do we have time
2: yeah let's do it
1: okay we got okay so yesterday as we mentioned on the show Elliot and I sat down with Ryan McDonough. Now, the full podcast just came out. There'll be a full video of the pod, which is really shot well and and looks great. We did it at uh, Taroni, which is a great restaurant in downtown Toronto. Uh, Looks spectacular. Uh, So that will come out on our YouTube channel on Friday. In the meantime, I'll play a clip here. This is uh, Ryan McDonough, Nashville Predators defenseman. I believe this is the clip about hard feelings uh, when he got moved from Tampa to Nashville. Let's hear part of the interview.
3: I wanted to ask you about this year. So you guys go to the final again. You come two wins away from winning your third straight cup. And then, you know, kind of how did everything unfold after that, Ryan? And just how hard was it on you? I mean, yeah, you're you're talking about a pretty wide range of emotions. We, you know, going on another exciting deep run and and with the group that's already so tight, been through so much together, uh, you know, a lot of success and some downs along the way. and. And like you said, when you, you come up short, uh, you know, your body's just kind of in shock and, and trying to recover and rest. And you're also trying to realize what you've accomplished the last couple of years and, and how close you were again that third year. And then to, you know, kind of get your world flipped upside down there with the trade rumors and the trade possibility of happening. Uh, you're just trying to keep your focus on trying to find the, the best situation, the best scenario for you and your family to continue playing. And how come you chose Nashville. Well, for me, it was, you know, things moved really quick and um, it was kind of an awkward time because it was later in the off season. It was coming up quick with uh, free agency and teams were kind of, or maybe it was the draft too, and teams were kind of trying to make moves with the cap and maneuver and position themselves. So it was going to take a lot of time for, for maybe more teams to get involved and you know, we had a couple teams right away reach out and and try to work something, but, you know, they kind of needed some time to make moves and needed the draft to come around and make moves. But, uh, you know, Nashville kind of came out of nowhere. And and when I reached out to them, they were really excited and it just kind of snowballed into a positive relationship and positive uh, scenario, so to speak. And it was really fortunate that they stepped up at the end and and made uh, a move. And for me, you know, I was thrilled to kind of stay with a competitive team and a team that had some older guys and some young guys coming up and like you talked about a great goaltender and the difference that could make in the playoffs going forward and as far as having some success so i was fortunate to like i said join a competitive team that was uh you know trying to win still it's probably the toughest question i have for you but are there any hard feelings at all with tampa oh i mean for sure you know like i said i think it'd be A little different maybe if we got knocked out in the first round or didn't make the playoffs and, you know, maybe you thought they needed to make some moves to uh, shake things up, so to speak, but, you know, to go all the way to the finals again and to game six and, you know, almost make it a third run, you feel like you can keep going with that group and keep having success, so uh, to move on from that was probably the most difficult thing for me. What are the memories that have the most gravity with you when you look back at Tampa,
1: the two Stanley Cups, the run to the final? You had a run to the final with the New York Rangers as well. But what
3: are your most vivid memories about playing in Tampa? I mean, uh, we had so much fun and obviously the excitement around that 62 win regular season run. Yeah. And then it comes crashing <laughs> to a halt. And yep. We uh, obviously remember what happened there, but you want to talk about adversity as a group and facing it head on and management and coaches sticking together and, sticking together in a group and believing in a group and not necessarily blowing it up or making too many big changes Um, to go through that come out of it the way we did I think I mean it's a grand scheme of a memory but uh, I think you know you always have adversity over the course of your career and life in general and for us to come out of it the way we did I think just really speaks volumes to that group as far as coaching staff management and players all coming together and I guess putting aside, uh, you know, their personal matters and and putting the team first to to try to do whatever we could to win. Do you remember any one specific player or message? Because I heard that Cooper in particular really trusted you. Was there any one particular message or comment or anything that a player said or, or team coach or executive said that you thought really mattered? I can't remember, you know, one player one meeting per se. We had a lot of great leaders on that team and obviously bringing in Pat Maroon after that season was was a big moment too having a guy that had just recently won you know the Blues had, were in almost dead last or whatever it was in January and then they go on that crazy run so as far as handling adversity, you know, we could kind of <clears throat> believe his words and and how he transformed that helped transform that blue season and so when I mean, when he came in and he started kind of getting a vibe of our team and You know, realizing that, uh, you know, there's got to be more to our game in order to win. It it can't just be the high flying skill offense that we showed for the regular season there and getting 62 wins. So I think, you know, kind of his message and the coaches changing some things in our tactics a little bit, a little bit of our message. And, you know, over the process of the training camp in the summer, our group realized that, uh, you know, we had to change a little bit.
1: So that's Ryan McDonough of the National Predators. Uh, tonight they'll face off against uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, you can watch that one on Scotiabank Wednesday Night Hockey. Um, the full video, the full audio rather, is available on our 32 Thoughts podcast. It just came out today. Wherever you find your podcasts, you can find that pod. Also the video... Which is really well shot looks great and you know ryan delivers he doesn't do many of these he doesn't do really any of these long form interviews um that comes out friday at the EsportsNet sportsnet youtube channel so check that out one final thing uh before we give way to peter baugh covering the avalanche tough one last night for the abs despite the third period heroics uh got a note from someone who's very much in the know and let's just say close to the situation Uh, we were talking about Hampus Lindholm a couple of seconds ago and what he's done for the Boston Bruins and what he's done to the Boston Bruins, and this is an interesting point. If you're like me and you spend way too much time and way too much energy obsessing about things like the alternative universes in the NHL, if this happened, if this didn't happen, and I know ifs and buts were candies and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas, but this person sends me this text. We'll go to break on this. A healthy Lindholm last spring, and Butch Cassidy is still in Boston, and Jim Montgomery is likely in Vegas very true it's amazing what happens, and it's amazing the alternative universes you can put together uh in the n h l you know one of the ones that just springs to mind right, right right away um you know when the Boston Bruins were looking to trade Joe Thornton, he ended up with San jose uh <laughs> And there was discussion about, and this is when Luongo was in Florida, a Roberto Luongo in exchange for Joe Thornton deal. What did the Bruins look like if they bring in Roberto Luongo? Now it got scotched because the Florida owner didn't want to bring in any money. So that went the way of the Dodo bird, but things to consider one day when we have a day, there's not a lot of news, a lot, a lot of games. We'll do the, if only this happened program or flavor pucks like that. And talk about some of those scenarios In the meantime, that is an excellent point Uh, if Lindholm was healthy last spring. Cassidy stays in Boston. Jim Montgomery probably goes to Vegas. Uh, Either way, Peter DeBoer is going to Dallas. Uh, And doing great there, by the way. We'll hit a break. We'll come back and talk about the Colorado Avalanche. Don't forget, Elliot Friedman kicks off Hour 2. We have a random player of the day as well at the top of Hour 2, so stay tuned for that. Peter Baugh from The Athletic on the Avs, dropping a tough one to the Cats last night. That's next when the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360.
3: Everything Raptors. Before and after the games. The Raptor
0: Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
1: Okay, so a relatively quiet night around the NHL this evening. Only four games. And again, as I mentioned, whichever game has the first puck drop between the Oilers and the Ducks, the Sharks and the Kings, that will be your halfway point of the season. If you obsess about things like that. I am just so trivial that I do. Uh, Caps in the Philadelphia Flyers. That one gets underway at 7 o'clock. The Flyers, you know, just ruining their chances at Connor Bedard. I don't think John Tortorella cares, but just wrecking their chances at uh, Connor Bedard. What is it? Four wins in their last five games. You only lost the one against the Maple Leafs on the weekend. Capitals, meanwhile... I got to just stop. I just got to stop saying at the beginning of every year, this is the year they crash into the wall. Uh, the Preds and the Maple Leafs get underway at 7.30 Eastern. That one is on Sportsnet. On Sportsnet 1 and West, we have the Ducks and the Oilers, the Sharks and the Kings. Meanwhile, last night, uh, really interesting and entertaining game between the Florida Panthers and the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, third period comeback by the Abs. Here we go. Uh, a call that I... Went over uh, on Arturia Lekanen, went over at the beginning of the program, but want to do it again here with Peter Baugh from The Athletic, who covers the Avalanche. And Peter, first of all, thanks for joining me. Second of all, I want to go through the concern meter that people have about the Avalanche, should they or should they not be concerned about Colorado. But the Lekanen play, I went over my thoughts on it at the beginning of the show. What are yours on that call with getting a stick in the hands of, of Aaron Eckblad?
0: Oh, yeah. So there were a few calls because I, I didn't know. I thought for a second you might be talking about his, his goal that was ruled offside, um, which was offside. The, the first penalty call on him, um, I think that was in the first, seems like a, maybe a bit of a one of those where it's like kind of if you go by the letter of the rule, it might be a penalty, but it's one that happens, I feel like, a lot in games. Um, but then the, the abs were particularly heated. Post game about, especially Mika Rinan about they thought that J.T. Confort got high sticked, and then that Nick Cousins mm. um, I guess embellished his his fall that led to the late Florida power play where they they had the game winning goal, Kachuk's goal in front of the net. Um, but yeah, what, what what were your thoughts on the uh, the first penalty on Lekanen? Were you uh, okay with it or, or not a fan?
1: Oh, I'm, I, surprisingly, I, I mean, I, I don't like it because it's, it's so light and it doesn't affect Ekblad whatsoever. Yeah. But here's what I think. Yeah. So once a, once upon a time, um, and it wasn't that long ago, the NHL had a rash of broken fingers and broken wrists, etc. and it was all because players are getting chopped in the hands as they skate through the neutral zone. And I think the final... The final straw was was Johnny Gaudreau when when he got when he got chopped. That was it. Flames were hot as as you know you would imagine, and the instruction came from up on high that anything around the hands has to be called. They were going to treat this like puck over glass, even if it's not flagrant, even if it doesn't you know even if it doesn't disrupt flow, uh, even if it doesn't impede the player with the puck. Anything around the hands is going to be called automatically. There's a concern that. If they start to let sticks getting into the hands, if they start to let those go, if they're just light, that players will take advantage of it. So the traditional, you know, guy growing up watching hockey looks at that and says he barely touched him. How can that be a penalty? But then I measure that off with, you know, the edict from up on high is if you touch a player's hands with your stick, no matter how viciously or how lightly it's going to get called. I kind of looked at it, Peter, and said, that's a call. You don't have to like it, but they're consistent. They call those things all the time.
0: Yeah, and I think that wasn't the, like I said, the Avs were more frustrated by the, the penalty, the, the one late in the game that that led to the, the last power play. I, I was, it's interesting because you could definitely look at a few calls and say that, the Panthers got two penalties that, or two power plays that maybe were ticky tack calls or whatever you want to call them. But at the end of the day, the Avs lost because they they played terribly, especially in the second period. I know they only allowed one goal that period, but they were, I think, outshot seventeen to four despite having two power plays and shot attempts were even worse. And it, it just was an ugly, ugly period. And I think that's the the thing you're seeing with this Avalanche team is they can they still have these stretches where they play. Some really good hockey, really attacking hockey, and, and like you saw last night in the third, but they've had too many of these kind of like stretches where they just let games get out of hand or, or let leads go away, and, and it's, it's been a little, a little ugly for them, and that's probably why their record isn't what it should be right now.
1: So, how concerned are you then about the Avs? Like, there's a couple of teams that personally I'm not that concerned about. Here we are at the halfway mark this evening. Uh, I can't believe that... I still can't get my head around the idea that a team that has McDavid and Dreisaitl might not make it the playoffs. So, I don't have that kind of concern yet for the Oilers. And I kind of don't about the Avs either. Like I, I don't know. Like yeah. am I am I wired wrongly? Like, I got I don't know. Like you're way closer to it than I am. Is there any nervousness, any anxiety about this around the ABS? You're you're right there.
0: The players I've talked to in recent days have all been like pretty confident of like we're going to get this turned around. They they're not they don't seem too concerned. I haven't talked to them a ton after last night, which I think was a pretty disappointing loss for them. My concern level is still. I'd guess moderate, but not super high. Like I think this is still a team that can put at some point is going to put together a good string of games and make the playoffs. What I do wonder is is if these minutes that McCarr and McKinnon and Rantanen are logging, how those will will affect them come the postseason. Like they're playing mm-hmm. a lot right now, and and I, I wonder. I mean, Kale McCarr is averaging twenty seven and a half minutes a night. He's played more than thirty minutes each of the last three games. Like that's doesn't feel like a sustainable strategy at this point in the year, but the ads keep falling behind and keep needing to have their best players on the ice, and so they're they're really having to ride guys like McCarrmackin and Rantan and Taves. Um, the big thing for this team is going to be health, and I think that's kind of been the story of the whole year. I think that they've. I I know you're like the number one Gabriel Landeskog fan, and I think this year could be a prime example of <laughs> true. Of, of why like they miss him. So much, like I think, I think of just like in terms of composure and hit the leadership he brings, but also just like the little stuff he does. Of, I mean, this team's kind of missed some of that net front presence, like blocking the goalie's eyes, all that stuff. And guy's one of the best at the, in the league at all of that. So I, I think that mm-hmm. they, they, the the line has been that they're still confident he'll be back this season. I think the longer it goes, though, the maybe the more concern rises because clearly this team needs him. It needs Nachushkin back playing like he can. And, and then I think you're looking at defensively, Manson and Byron being out has led to Makar and Taves playing more minutes to the point where they look a little tired. And then uh, the Gerard-Johnson pairing hasn't been maybe what it needs to be, especially considering all the other guys that are out.
1: Let, let, let me throw one thing out at you about Landis here. Is this going to be Patrick Kane slash Nikita Kucherov 2.0? That he's out, he's out, he's out, and then right before the playoffs he travels to Lourdes, bathes in holy water, and he's healthy for the playoffs?
0: <laughs> I mean, we'll see. The team They have to get back into like playoff position before they go ultra-aggressive at the deadline, I think, and... and and play the kind of cap game. You know, I, I think that maybe if it, I, I think that they would probably like him to play regular season games this year. If it, if it makes sense for, for the team, like the team gets on a roll and then, then maybe they you know, you can pull some shenanigans or, or whatever. But, but I think that it's, it's tricky to like say that they should do that, especially because like, I think if this team is still kind of like, hovering around the last playoff spot, it it makes it harder to justify going all the way, all the way in, especially with how weak the prospect pool is right now. Like, are you going to trade? If you're worried about making the playoffs and you're playing Cal McCarr 27 and a half minutes a game, like, do you really want to go all in and trade a first and a good prospect to get a second line center? Or do you kind of say, let's roll with what we have, let our prospect pool reset a little bit, and and see man maybe this team that we have which still has obviously world class talent can come together. So I, I think all those considerations have to be made with Landiscog and he has to just he has to get healthy which he, he hasn't really skated yet. Yeah. Like it's not it's not like he it seems he's particularly close.
1: So one of the things that we're all gonna be watching here, and I know you are, um, is what the Avalanche do at trade deadline and I think we're all expecting some type of second-line center to arrive in Denver, whether it's Horvat, whether it's Taves, whether it's someone else that we might just be flat-out missing here who's requested a trade and we're we're unaware of. What's your expectation of what the Avs do come trade deadline time?
0: Yeah, I really think it depends a lot on what comes in the next few weeks. I, I think that, like... If if they get going, then it's and it looks like their some of their injured guys are going to be back soon, and and they can be this kind of potent offensive team once again. Then I think you'll see them kind of go go all in. I mean, I think you heard last year at the deadline. I think I forget if it was Sackett or McFarland. I think it would have been Sackett because he was doing press conferences after the deadline at that time. He said like something about like we want we wanted to reward the team. And show our faith in them with this deadline. Like they, they earned the upgrades that we've made. Um, I'm not sure this year's team can say the same thing at this point. And the ABS are a team that has in the past been very resistant to trading first round picks. So I'm curious if um, I'm curious if they'll do that this year. If they'll consider trading a first, but I, I kind of think they've got to, I, I guess, show, show the front office that they deserve that before that before that's the case. And then I think, I mean, I, I think they could use another def- uh, defenseman and I think they could use a depth forward.
1: The, um, the, the one thing that I'll, and I don't disagree with you, and I, I get it, like if your team shows that you, that they deserve something or they should get a cookie or a reward for how they play that, you know, the general manager generally tries to, and normally does, rewards the team with something. I just can't help but looking at one thing specifically. I mean, the Avalanche still have one of the greatest gifts in the NHL, and that is Nathan McKinnon at $6.3 million. Yep. Next year, that's $12.6 million. So, regardless of maybe whether they deserve it or not, do you not, and we got about a minute to do this one here, do you not look at the fact that you've only got one year? of Nathan McKinnon on a team-friendly deal, so you kind of feel obliged to go for it right now one more time?
0: I mean, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think if they're in, if the, it looks like they're in playoff position, I think they will. Um, I, I don't think that the abs – I'm not trying to dispel the notion that they're going to try to, like, make their team better and win. I just think the aggressiveness with which they do it will be determined by the next few weeks. And I think you also have to – when looking at the McKinnon contract, going up you also have to remember that eric johnson's six million are coming off the books so they almost like cancel out um obviously you still have to yep yeah johnson will still cost money to bring back so it's not a yeah it's still not a full like it's not a full cancel out but i I think it is worth remembering with the mckinnon contract that they kind of planned it out for that to go up when johnson's contract comes off the books
1: uh, real quick, before I let you go, how's Force of Nature doing? Your uh, your documentation of how the ABS were put together to win the cup.
0: Oh uh, well, I, I I feel like people I've I've had a lot of really kind tweets and comments, um, and and you wrote way too nice a blurb on the back of the book, which was very kind. So I don't have exact sales numbers, <laughs> but hard. I think it's I I think it's doing okay, and I'd I'd love it if it's available in Canada on all the I think Chapters or Indigo or whatever it's called. And um, yeah, I appreciate everyone who's who's looked into it so far. It's
1: an excellent read. I recommend it to everyone. Uh, Peter is always full value, my friend. Uh, enjoy. Listen, we're going to check back regular. It's one of the most interesting teams. The defending Stanley Cup champion always is. Thanks as always for stopping by today, pal.
0: Sounds good. Thanks so much, Jeff.
1: There he is. Peter Baugh from The Athletic covers the Colorado Avalanche, dropping a tough one last night. Didn't even get the point uh, against the Florida Panthers. Had the big comeback, tied, right? Tucked away. We're going to try to complete the comeback, but at least we get the point, right? Not so fast. And that's a huge game for the Panthers as well. Elliot Friedman coming up in hour two. Not his normal spot, but nonetheless, we'll get the fridge. Also, Mark Savard, Windsor Spitfires head coach, who is now handling the career of Shane Wright, former NHL and one of the most skilled players you've ever seen. Mark Savard in hour two. Fridge is next. Keep it here
0: opinionated Maple Leaf show out there, real Kipper and born.
3: Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is
0: the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
1: All right, welcome back to the program. We're uh, trying to get in touch with Mark Savard, head coach of the Windsor Spitfires. One, that's right. Head coach of Shane Wright and the Windsor Spitfires, although I'm sure Shane Wright will just say, "Just say Windsor Spitfires." I'm part of the team, uh, but a huge part of the team. Now they were skating at 12:30 Eastern, so they would just be getting off the ice now. So we'll uh, try to get Savard here as quickly as we can to talk about, from a coach's point of view, like from his point of view, when someone like Shane Wright becomes available and it becomes apparent that the Kingston Frontenacs of the OHL are going to trade him. You know, I'm curious how much input a head coach would have. I'm curious how much input he would have had uh, with his general manager Bill Bowler, um, who ended up getting uh, uh, getting up sh- getting Shane Wright. Uh, I always do wonder about, especially considering, you know, there were so many different turns that the Shane Wright quote unquote sweepstakes took over the weekend. This was a really interesting one to follow, and. Part of, and you'll see this around trade deadline time in the NHL this year as well. <sighs> I try to be as polite as I can about this, but I'll just be blunt. Actually, um, anytime you're nearing a trade deadline, one of the hardest things that I've realized in this job, and Elliot's been doing, you know, the the, the insider uh, position for a lot longer than I have, but he's always warned me about this. One of the things that is the most tricky to decipher, and you spend a lot of time doing is trying to figure out who's deceiving you or not being totally forthcoming, or quite bluntly, who's lying to you. Because around trade deadline time, whether it's in junior hockey, whether it's in the NHL, there's a lot of incentive. There's a lot uh, of incentive to, uh, to 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 lie. So that's part of the challenge here. I'm just getting a note uh, from Lance Kennedy, our our technical engineer, that the practice is running late, so we'll have to get Savart at another time. But let me finish my thought here. We'll bring Marchese in to finish up the show and go over more of these certainties that you have for the season. The interesting thing about the Shane Wright sweepstakes this uh, this weekend that I was trying to nail down every step of the way and I didn't want to do the here's who's in the lead Uh, I mean I put out that I thought it was the London Knights and over the weekend it was very much in the, in the, the ball was very much in their courts I think the one thing that happened was when the Peterborough Peets made a lot of their moves on the Friday night, because a lot of us speculated that's where Shane Wright was going to end up. Um, Brennan Hoffman, his teammate uh, from minor hockey with the 2003 Don Mills Flyers, uh, was on that squad. Also teammates uh, with Brant Clark, uh, who plays for the Barry Colts. There was a lot of chatter about how he was going to ultimately end up with the Peterborough Peets. That's what the player wants, the team wants. But then they made a bunch of moves on Friday, most specifically bringing in Owen Beck, who's a prospect for the Montreal Canadiens. Just had a great training camp with them as well. Um, was added uh, to the Team Canada World of Juniors uh, when Colton Dock got injured. Um, so all of a sudden, Peterborough made a bunch of their moves on the Friday, and we kind of said, well, they might be all out of trade chips here. I wonder where Shane Wright is going to end up. And more and more of the people that I talked to said, watch London, watch London, watch London. I believe there was interest from Barrie. I believe there was interest from North Bay. I believe there was always interest from Windsor as well and probably some other, Ottawa, I would imagine you would throw into that conversation. James Boyd, the general manager there, did a lot of really good business even before trade deadline, but at deadline bringing in Pavel Minchikov, the Anaheim Ducks first rounder from Saginaw. So it seemed as if everything was lining up for London and then something changed on Sunday and it almost became like we're starting this whole thing over again Um, and it was back to the drawing board which are the teams that have expressed interest where does Shane Wright want to go in conversation with his parents with his agent Cam Stewart uh, with Ron Francis who joined us yesterday the general manager of the Seattle Kraken where was going to be the right fits Uh, And then on Monday, I started to get notes about watch Windsor, watch Windsor, watch Windsor. It sounds like London is out. Um, And that's ultimately what happened. I am curious when we finally get Savard on the program here. Maybe we'll get him on tomorrow if he's available. uh, I am curious how much input he would have had. Because don't forget, his team was, I would imagine, expecting to get Wyatt Johnson back. Um, I mean, I'm sure Wyatt Johnson wasn't intending to go back. He was intending to make the Dallas Stars, and he did. But I think there was some speculation and belief that they'd be getting Wyatt Johnson back uh, when that didn't happen. not that I mean, Windsor's not as good a team without Wyatt Johnson, obviously, but they're still a really good squad. Now with Shane Wright, they are an elite squad. Try to get Savard on the program maybe as early as tomorrow. Okay, Matty, so... Kicked off the program today and mentioned it with Elliot as well. The question of the day, which is, uh, we're at the halfway point this evening in the NHL. What are you one hundred percent certain of? What else has come in in the uh, in the QOD today?
2: Uh, this one from Rob and I hope I'm saying his name right, jabis uh, I'm 100% sure the Pacific Division teams are all Mirages except Vegas. Take a look at the goalie stats from that division in the, hmm. and the competing teams. There's like three to four mainstay ro- rotation goalies with a save percentage north of 900, and no one but Logan Thompson is very convincing.
1: Okay, so I'm looking at that tweet too. So I, I flagged that one. And there's an interesting second tweet that comes along to it. Uh, he says, and by Mirage, I mean, I'm not convinced any of them can legitimately compete come playoff time besides Vegas and maybe Edmonton if McDavid and Drysidle do their best Sisyphus, oh, great pull, Sisyphus impression and try to shove the boulder of questionable defense and shaky goaltending up the hill again. You know, the legend of Sisyphus is the man who is bound for all eternity to roll a boulder up one hill only to watch it roll down the other side. That is that person's personal hell. Roll the, build, the boulder up only to see it roll down. Although I kind of think that it's kind of inspirational, but that's for another story and on another day. Um, yeah, I don't know that they are necessarily, again, we'll have to see what teams do come trade deadline time. Um, we do know that Phoenix Copley is almost single handedly saving the Los Angeles Kings season. I'm really curious to see what the Seattle Kraken do. Uh, I'm really curious to see if one of, or neither, or both the Calgary Flames end up bottoming out here and not make the playoffs, or maybe they both jump in. I mean, the talent and the quality is there for both those squads to make it into the in, into the postseason. But I think Seattle has thrown a real wrench into all of this. Like Maddie, did you have Seattle as a playoff team at the beginning of the season? Be honest, because I didn't.
2: No, no, no chance. Nobody. If anybody did, they're lying. Jeff, come on. Especially after what we saw yeah. last year. Well,
1: the the well, the thing about it is too the the one remarkable thing. No, normally, when we see a team pop like this, you look at the goaltending and you go look at the save percentage and you go, okay, well. They're riding a hot goalie, so no surprise that they're in because it's basically the same team. But it's it's not as if they're getting, you know, 915, 920 save percentage from Martin Jones or Philip Grubauer. They're not. They're getting at 900 or less from both these two goaltenders. But I think you're seeing a really balanced attack. I think you're seeing a really strong system. I think you're getting production from your bottom six, and you're getting some really good defense you know, we didn't we haven't talked a lot about Vince Dunn at all this he's year on the program Maddie, we probably should have. By, he's been excellent. Vince Dunn has been really good. And for so long Vince Dunn was buried with the St. Louis Blues, but then you look at all the players that were playing above Vince Dunn in St. Louis and you say, well, okay, I can I can understand why he finds himself uh on the on the third pair even though he really is a good defender. He's been able to to blossom a bit here with uh, with Seattle. I don't know that I'd call them a mirage or fool's gold quite yet. I understand the point that Rob is trying to make. I'm just not, just not sure that they're all mirages. Let's let's see what happens by the by the time trade deadline rolls around. And I and listen, I think we still think that the Los Angeles Kings, uh, at the end of all of it by trade deadline time, you know that they're probably going to be the ones that win the Jacob Chikrin sweepstakes. That is, I know there's other teams that are involved, but that to me seems like maybe the most natural fit uh, you have a team that has that need and that has the pieces that Arizona is looking for and again I think we've been consistent with this for a while now the one holdup seems to be that third piece they're cool with the first two it's the third one that seems to be the hold up um, and Arizona it seems Maddie is only too happy to take their time with this one we've been talking about chikrin for over a year now and when where will he get moved what else we got
2: uh, I like this one. This is uh, from new uh, NYR Dan. So I'm going to say New York Ranger Dan, uh, because it is a Ranger tweet. Okay. And he says, I am sure Keandre Miller is going to cost the Rangers a ton of money. This <laughs> summer. And when we, when I think of Keandre Miller, I don't just think about how well dressed he is before the games. Cause he is one of the flashiest dressers in the NHL, but his skating ability and his offensive game, he's added another element. Like, And we all forget, or at least a lot of people do, Keiondre Miller hasn't been playing defense for a long time, and now he's going to get paid, and I love the story.
1: Yeah, it's a great... I remember um, I was working that draft, and uh, I was standing right in front of... K. Andre Miller and his mom. And if you know the story of, to your point, Maddie, if you know the K. Andre Miller story, uh, you know how important his mom is to his life. And the New York Rangers table was right in front of me. Uh, Or sorry, right off to to the side of me. So Keandre Miller gets picked. It's hugs. It's tears. It's what you expect when a kid gets picked, right? And mom is crying, and she's happy, and the kid's got the million-dollar smile on. He's dressed fine. He looks great, and he's going up, and he's putting on the Ranger jersey. And I will never forget. I did a brief interview uh, with his mom, and then she turned. Oh, man. I'll never forget this one. She turned to the Rangers' uh, table to thank everybody. For for drafting her son, it was like one of these like wonderfully beautiful hockey parent moments that you know very few, very few of us will ever experience. But just watching her thank the Rangers for drafting for drafting her kid to me was just uh, just a, a, a beautiful hockey moment. It was uh, it was wonderful. Love the player, and yes, Kay Andre Miller is going to get paid. Here's here's another one from at Kenny Oblong who submits this one. Jack Hughes will be the first Devils player to reach 100 points. Again, that's his lock. Jack Hughes will be the first Devils player to hit 100 points. Patrick Eliash holds the record with 96. Did you know know there hasn't been a Devils player to hit 100 points? It shouldn't surprise anybody considering how the the accent was always on defense with New Jersey. But yeah, Patrick Eliash, 96. That's the record holder.
2: I had no idea when I saw that. I was like, "There's no way," um, because just just oh, yeah. because they've been around long enough that you figure at some point in the early '90s or the late '80s that somebody would yeah. have fallen into a hundred points because there were a lot of guys at that time that <laughs> fell into a hundred points, um, and good for them. Yeah. But I was I was stunned to see that, and I I, I figured during the you know when they when they won the cup in 95 and they were trapping and then the game changed and then they continued to trap. I was like, okay, there's nobody there, but man, just on Jack Hughes, I always, I always tell the story because when I saw him the night of the lottery, the year he got drafted, I saw him walking with Pat Brisson. I was at the CBC building and I went, yeah, okay. That guy's going to be a Mm -hmm. star in the NHL. He's, he's too small. Like even at that time, I was like, he's still too small in a league that has gotten smaller. And he has just been—it's ins- incredible to watch.
1: The concern was, y- you're right, like the, the the smallish player, but it was the smallish center specifically. Like I can't tell you how many people yeah. came up to me and you know you talk about Jack Hughes and say, well, well, how many small centermen are there in the NHL? Like you can't succeed as a as a small sentiment in the NHL. Now in previous generations, and you can go back to look at that. Like look at that 19. 70s powerhouse montreal Canadiens team right with like and it's like but it's like jacques lemaire doug jarvis like smaller players down the middle now again it's a different era and now it seems you have to hit a, a certain height to, to get on that ride to be a center in the nhl but i i i'm really pulling for the small center just like i'm pulling for Connor bedard who's not six foot four uh, I'm pulling for Jack Hughes. Like it's a great story, dynamic player, new school guy. Uh, kids love him. Really, you know, uh, wonderful new age player, next generation. All of that, and I think that'd be great if he uh, if he eclipses Patrick Elias's record this season, and uh, and they finally have someone hit the uh, hit the century mark. Like you're right, you would have figured somewhere uh, along the line someone would have hit a hundred points for the New Jersey Devils, but. uh Not so fast. That ain't the thing. Uh, Okay, so listen, thanks to everyone for playing along on that one. We don't do the QOD very often, um, but when we do, man, we get fantastic responses from you. And a couple of more, uh, one from Chris Stilwell, who submits, abs are not good at all. And we'll have two very good picks in the draft. That's a shot at Florida, by the way, uh, for those who don't know. And I like this one from Jacob Billington, and I agree 100%. Tim Stutzla is undoubtedly going to be a superstar. And over the past few weeks, you've kind of seen it, right? Like, I think since the calendar flipped, he's either tied with the most points or top three already. So you're starting really to see Stutzla turn the page in his career. Uh, thanks to everyone who chimed in. We'll try to get Mark Savard on the program at another date. Uh, thanks to Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night in Canada and 32 Thoughts. Uh, thanks to Robert for uh, Robert Sco for sending in the random player of the day, which is Peter McNabb. Uh, Show at Sportsnet.ca if you want to get your random player involved. Peter Baugh from The Athletic, and we played a clip from the Ryan McDonough 32 Thoughts podcast interview. That is available wherever you listen to podcasts. The video of that one available Friday on the Sportsnet YouTube channel. Okay, Leafs, Preds, tonight, Scotiabank, Wednesday night hockey. Enjoy it. We're back tomorrow.